We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of the uh, seat in front of you, in the seat back in front of you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been spending the last few weeks discussing the topic of heaven. We've looked at the center of heaven, the throne of God. God sits on his throne unassailable, and he is worshipped day and night there. We looked at the Lamb, the worthy one, who will accomplish the ultimate purposes of God, who will bring heaven to earth. We looked at Eden, the gift of God to man, God making the Garden of Eden, God making man, and God fitting the two of them together, served us as a picture of God's creative grace to give us a gift of an eternal home that we will dwell in and enjoy his gifts to us for all eternity. And I think, I can't promise you this, but I think that this will be our last in the series on heaven. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians 4, that speaks of our hope. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so... We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, can encourage us with these words. Open our hearts to the truths here that we might understand and grasp their significance for us today. Teach us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This text is a call not to be ignorant. It calls us to be informed. It's a terrible thing to be ignorant. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Sometimes that works out well. There are things you just don't want to know, and uh, your life is better for it. But there are some things that if you are ignorant, then you are going to be missing out on the hope that God has for you. This text is in your Bible so that you will not be ignorant about a certain aspect of God's plans for history. And he doesn't want you to be ignorant so that you might be full of hope. We have to learn what this text says so that we are not ignorant when we are faced with life's greatest griefs. Life's greatest griefs are probably the loss of those who are dearest to us. And those who are dearest to us, if we're in Christ, are other people who are in Christ. Certainly we have family members and friends that we know and love uh, who may not be believers, 
But if you are in Christ, if you know Christ, God does something in your heart where the people that you end up loving the most are other people who are in Christ. And when you lose them, whether it be a family member or a friend who dies in Christ, there is going to be grief. But this text calls us to have a grief that is distinctly different from the world. And it calls us to have a distinctly different grief from the world because we, of all people, should have hope. And this text lays out for us what that hope is. This text will lay out for us three facts about the Christian's hope that help us not grieve like the world. First, our hope is unlike the world's hope. Our hope is unlike the world's hope. You've probably seen people grieve in your life. You've seen people around you lose loved ones. And you may have seen how unbelievers grieve during the season of loss. I wonder how atheists grieve. I wonder how atheists handle death and loss. This isn't, I'm not the only one who wonders that. Even atheists wonder that. In an article written by an atheist entitled Grief Without Belief, How Do Atheists Deal With Death? We get an insight into what grief looks like when there is no hope. And I want you to consider this article. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of it to you. And I want you to lodge this in your minds because this is what Paul is talking about in verse 13 when he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. This is a living example for you about what grief looks like for those who have no hope. And we'll talk more about what the hope is that they don't have. But for now, just listen to what this atheist's response is to death. Quote, For all the talk of rationality, intellectual honesty, and objectivity we engage in as atheists, this is one of the most uncomfortable questions we have to wrestle with. What should we say to our family and friends when they are acutely grieving losses? So this is an attempt to comfort those who have lost a loved one, and the comfort comes through the lens of an atheist's worldview. Here is one of the ways that the comfort comes. Here is their framework for offering some comfort in the midst of life's deepest griefs. Quote, I know that we're alive through our offspring. You are physically an embodiment of your father's biological and genetic essence. This includes everything from how you look to many of the behavioral and personality traits you have. In other words, and this is not an exaggeration, your father is literally alive through you as mine is through me. For me, knowing that is incredibly powerful and comforting. End quote. The comfort offered is that because you inherit the genetic material of your father, if you lose your father, you can take comfort that your father is alive through you because you have inherited his traits. That's the comfort that's offered. But there's more. Quote, I know that we continue to exist through the earth. As part of this huge reservoir of terrestrial carbon, we die and become part of the earth 
which gives rise to new life as it once gave rise to us. That is also very powerful to me in a more collective, worldly sense. End quote. The comfort there is that when you die, your body is placed in the ground, it decomposes and becomes part of the earth. And so you go on as fertilizer for the plants of the earth. And this atheist takes comfort in that, that your body continues to give back. The article goes on and offers that you should desire to have a physicist speak at your funeral because a physicist can offer hope. I love physics and I love physicists, but I'm not sure that I want a physicist speaking at my funeral. (laughs) Here's what they offer. Quote, you want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, Every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. End quote. Those are platitudes. It may be true that Matter is neither created nor destroyed, or energy is neither created nor destroyed. There is a conservation of energy. There are laws of thermodynamics, but I doubt that that mother is going to be comforted by those laws of thermodynamics. They're just dance around words, saying that your body goes into the ground, decomposes, and feeds the grass, saying that your energy is still in the universe, and so you should be comforted, or just dance around words, because we all know the grief that comes when somebody departs from this world is that you don't get to be around that person anymore. You don't want their energy. You don't want their fertilizer. You want them. And fertilizer and energy is not the same as that person. You can't talk to the energy. You can't hug the fertilizer. You can't cry with them. You can't call them on the phone. You can't get that email or text message or hear the sweet sound of their voice anymore. We all know those are platitudes that offer no real comfort in this world when you're dealing with real loss and real grief. You want the person back. That's what you want. I doubt that that grieving mother... is going to receive the physicist's words of comfort. She might have something to say about energy, and it might be the swinging handbag towards the physicist's head. (laughs) We all intuitively recognize that human beings are more than the sum of their parts. Even when the body is still there, and the life is gone, you know that your loved one is not there anymore. And so we need a hope that doesn't utterly fail. We need a hope that is sure and steadfast, a hope that is real and not just platitudes. The ancient world that Paul was writing in didn't have much more comfort than the physicist. 
One ancient poet wrote, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. Another letter was discovered that had condolences written from one couple to another who had lost a son. And they wrote, quote, I sorrowed and wept over your dear departed one, but really there is nothing one can do in the face of such things. You're surrounded by a world that has no real comfort to offer in the face of loss. And so when Paul picks up the pen and writes down these words in 1 Thessalonians 4, and he tells the people, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He is writing to strip them from the world and the worldly thinking that death is just this hopeless chasm and anchor the people into the real weighty truths that God has given us to give us some sure and steadfast hope about those who have died in Christ. Paul thinks there is something you can say. There is something you can believe that is really comforting. Atheists say that when you're dead, you're dead and gone, and there's no coming back. Agnostics say we can't know. Reincarnationists say, well, the person comes back again, but not as a person you would ever know, or perhaps as an animal. But we want something more sure and firm and satisfying. We want to be, uh, we want to be informed. In this case, ignorance is no virtue in the matter of grief. And Paul's explicit desire is that they would be informed. The situation of the Thessalonians is Paul had planted this church. You can read about it in Acts 17. Paul went to this region of uh, the ancient world, preached the gospel. People came to faith. Paul had to leave because there was persecution. He left the church there, but he wasn't done discipling them. So he writes this letter to help them get up to speed on some things that they need to know about. And one of the things they need to know about is what to deal with when they have loved ones in Christ departing. And the the way that Paul sets out to address this is by informing them about the reality of what happens to those who die in Christ. And so he refers to this category of people as those who are asleep. We see Paul here gently steering the Thessalonians towards the truth about those who have departed in Christ. And he calls them to be those who are asleep. This is a euphemism for death. To call somebody asleep is to acknowledge that they have died, but it's not just a euphemism to kind of take away the uh, dramatic language of death. It's not as though Paul is trying to sugarcoat it. Paul doesn't use sugarcoated language. He's not that kind of guy. He doesn't mince words. When he uses words, they're intentional. And so when he says that these people are asleep, he uses that language intentionally. And the reason he does it is because it makes us realize that those who are dead in Christ are not dead forever. They are sleeping. Some people would propagate the idea that's called soul sleep. It would be the idea that when a Christian dies, your body dies, it ceases functioning, and then your soul goes to sleep, and so you are unconscious for a period of time. 
There may be some texts in Scripture that might suggest that or use language that looks like it, but that's not what they're teaching. And as a matter of fact, it's a scriptural. It's not a scriptural teaching. It's something uh, that is categorically denied by Scripture. Jesus said to the thief on the cross who was dying right next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. The expectation of Jesus Christ was when that thief, that repentant thief on the cross, died that very same day, the thief would be conscious in paradise. He'd be alive. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, as he speaks about his own death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on to say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. He views his death as a departure, not as a soul sleep. He would leave his body, but he would go and be with Christ. And that's exactly what he says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Again, the expectation of Scripture is that the person who dies in Christ doesn't cease to be conscious. Their body ceases to function, but their soul goes to live with Christ. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, this vision of heaven, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are souls in heaven who are conscious, even aware of what's going on earth to some degree. They're certainly not sleeping. They're very much awake. So when Paul talks about those who are asleep, he's referring to those who have died in Christ and their bodies are put into the ground. And he's referring to this period of time while they're in heaven, but their body is on earth and there's going to be a day when God reunites the two and resurrects them to life. And so for now, from our perspective, you could say those people who are in the grave are sleeping. Paul's not trying to sugarcoat it. He's trying to teach those who are asleep. Notice, however, in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The way that Paul speaks about Jesus is not that Jesus slept and rose again, it's that he died. And that's because we need to understand that Jesus tasted the full bitterness of death in the agonies that it entailed, the separation from God as he hung on that cross and experienced the weight of the sin of the world. Jesus died. He tasted death. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory in honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then Hebrews two fourteen and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. One pastor describes death for the Christian as a snake bite, but Jesus has ripped the fangs away from the snake. 
So you're bitten by death, but it doesn't inject its poisonous venom into you any longer because Christ took that venom. And so now death for the believer becomes sleep. One commentator writes, No longer must the mourners weep and call departed Christians dead, for death is hallowed into sleep and every grave becomes a bed. Now once more Eden's door open stands to mortal eyes. Now at last, old things past, Christ is risen. We too shall rise. Because of this, we're not to grieve as others because there is a hope. And the hope begins with the simple reality that death for the believer is now called sleep. It's transformed. Something new has happened through Christ. Now, when Paul tells us that we should not grieve as others do who have no hope, he's not at all saying that we should not grieve. It's just that the way that we grieve should be different. It should be distinctly Christian. It should be unique in the world. Those who have no hope come up with platitudes or just despair. Christians have hope, and so our grief should be different. But that does not mean that we do not grieve. Paul writes in Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep, which assumes that there is weeping. And when Paul was anticipating one of his dear friends was going to die, Paul writes in Philippians 2, 27, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul expected that if his dear friend Epaphroditus died, he would have sorrow. Yeah, you grieve because they're gone, and you can't see them again. But you don't grieve like the world because that's not the end of the story. There's more to say. And so the first fact about hope is that our hope should not be like the world's hope. Our hope is different. The second fact to learn about our hope is that our hope is in a Savior who died and rose. Our hope is in a Savior who died and rose. Again, verse 14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That same article I quoted before, Grief Without Belief, goes on to say, speaking about what happens after you die, well, quote, no one has reported back from the other side. None of us who are alive have been to the other side, And we don't have any factual evidence supporting a life as we know it after we die. That's a factually inaccurate statement. The whole main tenet of Christian doctrine is that somebody came from heaven to earth, died, returned to heaven, came back from heaven to earth, spent some time on earth, and then went back to heaven and is going to come back. And so we've got somebody who's been there and back again a number of times. And there's an empty tomb to prove it. And there's the testimony of eyewitnesses to prove it. And subjectively, there's the transformed hearts to prove it. 
There's the spiritually dead who have been raised to life to prove it. When people say that we can't know what's on the other side because nobody's crossed that boundary, we have to respond as believers, that's not true. I remember sitting down to uh, uh, just a meal with an unbeliever at one point, or somebody who's kind of questioning their faith, raised Catholic and not really sure what to do with the whole religion thing, and he said uh, he wasn't sure about what would happen to him after he died because nobody had ever gone, had died, and come back again. I said, well, actually, let me tell you about this guy who did that. His name is Jesus. He died, went into the grave, was completely dead, and he came back again. And he tells us, that he is the resurrection and the life. And anybody who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this gentleman I was speaking with across the table, his eyes just kind of widened. He grew up Catholic, but it never even thought maybe Jesus had gone and come back again. And because of that, we can have a sure hope Jesus came from heaven, lived on earth, died on earth. His spirit was committed into the hands of the Father. He rose again bodily from the grave. He returned bodily to heaven, and he's going to return bodily from heaven to earth. And Paul says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The reason that we ought not to mourn like those who have no hope is because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And because he died and death was not the end for him, we can kind of begin to conjecture, well, maybe death doesn't have to be the end for everybody. Maybe because this one man died and rose again, maybe we can begin to think death is not actually the final door that we walk through. But the question is, how? How can that apply to us? For Jesus, the reason that he died was for our sins, and the reason he rose again was because of his righteousness. Jesus was raised from the dead because God put his stamp of approval on the life of Jesus, saying he is completely righteous, and death therefore cannot have any hold on his indestructible life. And so he's going to burst through the doors of the grave because his life is so powerful it cannot be held down by death. That's why Jesus is alive. But if you start to think about your own life, you think, but if I die, I can't punch through the grave like Jesus did. If I die, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. And so how do I punch through the grave? Well, look at what Paul says, says, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Yes, Jesus had an indestructible life, And by the grace of God, God is willing to apply that indestructible life 
to very destructible sinners. And for those who come to faith in Jesus, believing he died for your sins and that he rose again in vindication over the grave, God will take the life of Jesus, impart it to you, and then when Jesus comes back, it says, God, through Jesus, will bring you with him. This is all because Jesus died and Jesus rose. We can take the heaping, overflowing credibility of Jesus, and by God's grace, he applies it to us, and it applies the promise of life after death to those who believe in him. This is so important, because this just puts all of our hope outside of ourselves, If you have any inkling that you yourself will conquer death in some way, then you're without hope. Nobody on their own has been able to conquer death except one, Jesus. If you're putting any hope in your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own works, your own abilities, your hope is ultimately vain. But if you put all of your hope, all of your faith in the one who died and rose again, then you've got a sure hope. Then you've got something worth latching on to. This is the case for those who believe in Jesus. It says God will bring you with Jesus. This leads us into the third fact about our hope. Paul begins to unfold the details of what that means to be brought with Jesus. What does that mean? The third fact about our hope is that our hope is in a Savior who will return Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We have a hope, and our hope is very distinct from that of unbelievers. And our hope is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now we're given some details that flesh out some of the details of that hope. What will it look like? These are three verses, but they're packed full of truth. The details are a specific revelation. It says in verse 15, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. In other words, you can't figure this out on your own. You can sit and meditate in a quiet chamber all you want. You can spin your wheels. You can do the math. You can do the history research, and you will never come up with this on your own. This has to be revealed to you. It's being revealed to you now by the pages of Scripture. This truth about the coming of the Lord and what's going to happen to his people. I have to ask, just, it's so important because this statement, this we declare to you by a revelation from the Lord, really kind of pricks at our autonomy. So I have to ask you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with being told that you can't discover something on your own, that you need to be told the truth about something? 
There's a lot of people who aren't. That kind of rubs you the wrong way. I think we think we're so independent, so autonomous that if I need to figure it out in this life, I can do it myself, doggone it. I can figure out how to fix that car. I can figure out how to get my job. I can figure out how to conquer death on my own. Well, that's not the case. You need to be told what the hope is. You cannot figure this out on your own. In this case, there's probably a direct revelation from Jesus to Paul that he communicates to the church. It's a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord is simply this, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The situation behind this was probably like this. You've got this young church at Thessalonica, Uh, near modern-day Greece. And this young church has been taught some of the truths about Christianity. And they were taught that the big hope that we have is that the king who died and rose again is going to come back. And that's Christianity 101. You need to understand that. Jesus died, rose again, and and is coming back. And we're taught what a big deal that is. There's going to be a trumpet. There's going to be transformation. uh, There's going to be the world uh, kind of of a cataclysmic end. It's just going to be this huge, big deal. And that's our hope. Our hope is not in this present world. world. It's in the world to come. And Jesus is going to usher all that in. And so it's a big deal. Some believers at Thessalonica started to die. We don't know how or why, but they started to die, and it begins to churn in the wheels of those who are still alive. Well, what's going to happen to those believers who died? Are they going to miss Jesus coming back? Because Jesus is physically coming back. He's bodily coming back. So what's going to happen to those people who've already died? And they begin to perhaps worry, are they going to miss out on this day of Christ? All of our hope, are they going to be left out of it? And so Paul begins to instruct them that, yes, there's two categories of people. There are those who are left alive at the return of Christ, and there are those who have fallen asleep before the coming of Christ. And Paul's point there in verse 15 is that those who are still living when Christ returns are not going to have precedence over those who died before Christ returns. They're going to have an equal share in the goodness that comes when Jesus returns. The return of Jesus is so important in our world. When the disciples stood there watching Jesus going back into heaven the first time in Acts 1.11, an angel stood next to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back, and he's coming back physically. Jesus speaks about his return in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. He says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather the, his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This return of Christ is so important that in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says it's our blessed hope. 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 25, verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is our hope that Christ is coming back. It's a monumental event. And in that monumental event, Paul is now striving to let us know that if you are in Christ, whether you're dead or whether you're alive, you're going to get to enjoy all of the goodness of Christ's return. That's the hope. There is no precedence. This is really significant because who else can say that they can give equal blessing to both the dead and the living? Who else can do that? Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8 says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Glory to our Savior who can equally distribute blessings to both the dead and the living. He is good, and he will unite both together at his return. Here is how the dead and the living will be brought into unity with the Lord. It says in verse 16, For the Lord himself. It's important to note that Jesus is not sending a deputy, a liaison, He's coming, the king himself. No ambassador anymore, it's just him. He's coming. He himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. That's most likely his own command, his own declaration. With the voice of an archangel, there will be angels there, chief angels, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, it's going to be a noisy affair that's going to attend the return of our Lord. Not a silent, quiet event. And it says that when he comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. The power of the resurrection of Christ then will be on full display as those who died in Christ and are in the tombs will be brought to life again. Those who have been dead for ages or those who just recently died before his return will come from the tombs. And they will be as alive, more alive than you and me are right now. And then, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That will be the great reunion. High school reunions... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 year, 60 year high school reunions won't hold a candle to this reunion. As those who have died in Christ and those who are alive in Christ are reunited, brought back together bodily. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Right now, it says in Ephesians 2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. There's going to be a day when that's done. It's when Jesus comes back, and there will be no competition to him. He will own the heaven, the earth, and under the earth, and it will all be his. And we will meet him in the air with all those who have 
preceded us. Or if we die before he comes, we will be risen first. And then this wonderfully sweet phrase at the end of 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. Each word is important there. Because of Christ coming back, because of him rising, so. We, the dead in Christ, the alive in Christ. The we. Some would suggest that there's not going to be any kind of remembrance of what's happened on this earth. We're not going to remember each other in heaven. And I couldn't disagree more. We're going to know each other. It's the we that's important. The fellowship now matters for eternity. We will be together. We will always. There's no end to this class reunion. It will go on forever. If you feel like you just never got quite enough time with that person, you didn't get to say your final goodbyes. You didn't get to give that last hug, that last phone call, write that last letter. You didn't get to say all the things were on your heart. Because life is short. The solution to that grief is right here. We will always. There's no end to it. And then the sweetest part of it, be with the Lord. The great object of our adoration, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the central activity of our hearts for all eternity, the thing that has brought us together as brothers and sisters is Christ. And so we get to have that great thing in common for all eternity. That's the great joy. The thing that we love most about each other now in Christ is Christ in us. That's the thing that we love most about each other. We don't love the sinful parts of each other. We love the parts that Christ has transformed. And so we all get to be together with the Lord, made in the likeness of his image. One commentator says, quote, the entire content and worth of heaven, the entire blessedness of life eternal, is for Paul embraced in the one thought of being united with Jesus, his Savior and Lord the man who does not rejoice at being forever with the Lord should examine his faith. That's our hope. This is a real hope. It's not platitudes. The real hope is that Jesus is coming back. He will bodily bring those who are dead in Christ alive, and he will join those with, with them, those who are alive already at his return, and he will always be with the Lord. The platitudes that we just exist on as energy or as dirt does not satisfy the longing of our hearts to be back together with those we love. Moreover, it doesn't even come close to satisfying the longing of our hearts to be with Christ. But the return of Christ and the resurrection of, dead, of the dead and the reunification of believers, that's a real hope. And so Paul concludes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's a command, brothers and sisters. This is not something we just passively leave aside, but as we face real grief in our life, take this sure hope and offer it out to those who are grieving. Heaven is our hope. Heaven with other believers is our hope. Heaven Always with Christ is our hope. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you know just how to touch our hearts, just how to encourage us. You know what really encourages and what really satisfies. Father, I pray that we would be done with empty platitudes, empty wishes, and we would put all of our hope in Christ returning and being reunited with those who are in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the sure hope. Thank you that you've proven it by Jesus rising from the dead. Thank you that you've imparted this hope to our hearts and we don't see it as a just fanciful wishes, but real. Thank you, Lord, for a sure hope. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.